for joining the show. We have a, I mean, you're going to want to stick around if you're going to want to learn about sports science, sports dietitian, and working in the NFL. We have Jennifer Gibson, Jen Gibson. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself, and we've been talking off air, but let's just kind of roll into it. Sure. So uh, my name is Jennifer Gibson, and I'm, uh, I go by Jen, um, and I'm a performance dietitian and exercise physiologist. Um, been at the game for about uh, 17 years now. Uh, Ten of those was in the Olympic world. Um, I'm originally from Canada, so spent five years working in the Canadian Olympic system and then um, got headhunted down to Team USA, spent five years in the Olympic world down there, um, and then got recruited into the NFL um, and spent the last seven years uh, as sports science coordinator and sport dietitian for the Chicago Bears. Um, throughout that entire time, I've done a ton of fun little consulting projects, worked in women's pro tennis for six years. Um, worked with the New Orleans Saints as well, um, a bunch of MLS teams and some NBA clients. Um, and now, just in the last uh, season of my life, just kind of decided to start my own practice, start my own private consulting business. Um, it's called Lead Eats Inc. And just trying to take all those years of working with the most elite um, sport clients and, and kind of start my own gig. I mean, so 10 years in the Olympics, and then you got headhunted from the Olympics in Canada to the Olympics here, and then to the NFL. Like, yes. talk about that. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So it's, I mean, as you know, in our in our world and in sport, it's kind of like who you know and who knows you. And um, in the Olympic world, it's a lot about uh, looking for other people with Olympic experience. And oftentimes, that's really just um, looking globally. So my sport background, personally, is combat sports. And so the U.S. Olympic Committee was looking for a combat sport dietitian, um, which physiologically is like the most fun population to work with, to work with weight cutting and, and getting that right. So uh, they had hunted me down, and um, it, was, it was a great population. It was my passion kind of area to work in. And then, as you know, it's just kind of you start to meet people. And um, I had written, I had been in a few articles um, in the media, and somehow somebody from the New Orleans Saints invited me to come and kind of evaluate their their sport nutrition program and physiology kind of program and there wasn't one and so that kind of parlayed into consulting for them and then that parlayed into somebody from that team leaving to become the GM of the Bears and recruiting me over there and um, it was a fun time in the NFL I actually left to go for the for the schedule because <laughs> I was like wow I don't have to be on a plane 250 days yeah. a year I, I could just get to go every other you know every other weekend for a night in a charter this sounds awesome so it was definitely a fun opportunity to build a program from like literally nothing and uh, and just to get to experience that world for a really long time. That's awesome. Um, how did you have roles where sports science coordinator and dietitian? How, how does that work yeah. out? Like how do you handle the two worlds? Yeah, so for me, that's all, I've always had that dual role because my, my education was, um, I did a, a traditional you know, Bachelor of Science in Nutrition, dietetic um, internship, worked kind of in the dietetic world. Um, but then when I went back to do my master's, I, I did a pure 100% ex-phys master's, like a separate master's. It wasn't a combined uh, program with nutrition. And so um, basically did the, like a, a, a pure, you know, applied physiology stream, worked in a physiology lab when I was doing that. And so that kind of lended itself into the duality of my practice over the years where, like I say to some of my interns, I can, I can go from like, you know, writing a menu for a team to analyzing GPS reports. And my brain's just been trained to go both ways that way. And so it's just a byproduct of how I came up in the system. I mean, that's impressive that you could, you know, be doing both, but at the same time, it's probably beneficial because if you're working with strength and conditioning coaches or sport coaches and it's different times of the year, then you can interpret what the data means for the amount of workload that they're doing. And then, yep. you know, try to properly prescribe the nutrition that would help them with that certain phase. Is that things you were doing? Yeah. Yeah. And, and really, I think like just having a sound understanding of applied physiology and testing and how you can kind of incorporate that. Um, and that, that it all kind of, we all kind of work in these areas where there's kind of crossover, you know? So, if I'm responsible for what's going into my athlete's body, then I should be able to be able to measure. I should be able to measure that. I should be able to know how to use an RMR cart or measure VO2 max or um, measure sweat sodium um, 
measures with sodium from the set or from the sweat or understand lab values. Um, and then again, work at those, you know, external and internal load measurement tools and understand how that impacts um, not only caloric expenditure, but stress on the body and, and within the training cycle, how that fits in. So I feel like it's just a natural connection and whether or not you truly practice like how I have in both worlds, um, it, it, it's really important for both sides to kind of have a good understanding of how they operate. You mentioned it with the hydration and the sweat rate. How For our listeners out there that maybe don't have as high level you yeah. know, education as you do, what would be some of the best recommendations to measure hydration and sweat rate testing? Yeah, so the, the most important thing to remember is that, um, first of all, every single athlete is an individual when it comes to this. So if you're working in a program and, you, and you're giving blank um, recommendations or like generic recommendations for everybody, then it's pretty much the same thing as telling everybody on your team that they need to eat a 200, a 2000 calorie diet. Like you see kind of, you know, recommended from the FDA, you know? Um, so remember for hydration, if you're in that position where you're just giving like, Oh, you need to have two liters of water a day. Like you're really, really missing the mark because hydration, um, status and, and, and losses are very individually determined and usually just set genetically. So, um, a, the other thing to remember is that measuring it is, is a comprehensive approach. And so I, I, I teach, I've taught a few lectures. It's called 360 hydration assessment. And so what that involves is you have to get a measure of fluid loss, which you can easily do through a, through a pre and post weigh in situation. Ideally, you want to be able to measure what's been consumed, but you don't necessarily have to do that. And you really want to make sure you're trying to standardize the, the clothing and what the players are wearing before and after. Because you, you've probably experienced this too. You get a guy that weighs out with his sweaty gear on or even just some extra pads and you've messed your whole calculation up. But in addition to that, um, that's just telling you about the fluid loss, right? We're not actually looking at the composition of that fluid and what's, what's going on with that athlete's sweat. And is there are they truly a salty sweater and can we can we do a sodium intervention if it's needed for them so that's where the next level of that is and what i've done in different sports different ways but you kind of would potentially do sweat set sweat testing with your entire squad or maybe just your high risk guys whereby you would put a sweat patch on them collect a sweat sample analyze it using a, a there's some really nice easy devices you can use for that um, I use the Laquatwin Hariba system, get a measure of sweat sodium, and then from there can determine, again, where you, you can then kind of determine not only how much fluid does this athlete need to consume, but then should I add additional electrolytes to that uh, fluid and in what amount? Um, and then on top of all of that, the third level of hydration assessment, if we really want to nerd out, is looking at the, the physiology of, of heat and the impact of that on your athlete. And remembering that um, part of why we sweat is because we're creating internal heat. Um, and, and that heat can be exacerbated by um, external heat like the sun or humid conditions. And so there's interventions you can, you can partake to control that, right? And so that would be things like ice vests or, or dipping the hands in, um, in, in ice water or using some of those hand cooling devices or even just uh, we did we used to do it with the football players just ice towels around their head and neck to cool the actual uh, thermostat down and so if you do one and two but forget the third you're battling a physiological response that you're you know what I mean you could drink all the water in the world but if the person's still overheating from a core temperature sensor core temperature sense um, that's another piece. So it's always a reminder that like, you know, we can go really deep and I've gone really deep and it's really, really fun uh, if you're into physiology. Um, but just remember if you're at that level where you're kind of just saying, everyone ain't drink two liters a day, like we got it, we can go deeper than that. So I do want to go deeper with that. And as you were <laughs> talking about it, one of the, like we do, I've done some sweat rate testing with a company before and we'll do that. We'll put the patch on their arm. We'll go through a training session, very similar to get it. And then we'll analyze it. This is how much fluid, this is how much of it is, you know, sodium. So I'm, I'm sticking with you on all that. The yeah. thing that made the first thing I want to ask about is you mentioned the, the, you know, the temperature in which you do it. So if you do that sweat rate testing on a day, that's maybe hotter, more humid, 
are you first question is that going to be invalid data than if it was just a outlier in terms of how hot it was that's a really really good question um the the short answer is not really because um while that environmental temperature will impact the fluid loss so how much sweat they actually produce overall the sweat sodium concentration is is very very much kind of just a set to who you are as an individual so um it can be a little bit modified by like if the athlete's having a really really high salt diet or if they're having a really really low salt diet and they make a huge change but truthfully that sweat sodium is kind of going to be what it's going to be uh, for you as an individual. So um, an environmental uh, stressor may, w would not necessarily impact your results for the sweat sodium piece. Yeah. Okay. And then the other question that I have for you now is I have some, I would call it at best anecdotal research out there. A friend yeah. of mine who, who nerds out on this stuff too. Um, yeah was reading some research about cooling down and the bad way to cool athletes down is putting towels around your neck because it now tells the brain that you're not hot even though the rest of your body is hot is there any validity to it because what he was saying is you're supposed to actually ice like around the wrists and the ankles because now that's peripheral from the brain and it's going to help you cool yourself down faster because now warm blood is going to the brain therefore the warm blood tells the brain hey we're still hot we still need to get cooled down yeah that's a real that's really fascinating um you're like we're, we're going right down my favorite alley so like yeah is going down into the research about like the location of your cooling and if if it's like like location specific and so um i don't know the answer to that right now what i do know is that when we have when we have had players that have had kind of um, the cooling towels around their head or neck, there's also kind of a psychological component of them calming down a little bit. That's also helping from a, like an emotional psychological perspective, you know? Um, and for us in football, it was just more, it was just more convenient because they have gloves on a lot of times if they're, if they're catching balls and stuff. And so it was harder for us to, to use the hands. Um, but what I will say about it, and I've studied uh, core temp really interest, in interesting ways, especially with athletes making weight and, and kind of watched, um, we, I used to do these weird studies where I'd, I'd throw an internal core sem temperature sensor into a guy cutting weight. And then we would, we would do different interventions, different cooling interventions to try to get them their core temp down. And one of the observations we made um, was that it took a, it took quite some time for the body to actually have a reaction to the cooling stimulus because it kind of takes time to start cooking. It's almost like an oven. It, it takes time for the oven to, to cool down too. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I, I, so it's interesting. I mean, I'd love to like dig into that physiology a little bit about it being localized to, to the brain and the ha versus the hands and um, it's a really fascinating question. So I'm excited to learn, read and learn a little bit more about that. Cause this is definitely a nerd out area for me. Uh, speaking of nerd out area, what was the biggest thing that you would then nerd out with on the data analysis side? Because, you know, it is a hot button topic and our listeners, you know, a ton of them have catapult. So what has been the biggest nerd out moment for you within the technology side? We kind of talked about the <laughs> Oh, that's, that's really interesting. Um, you know, to be honest with you, what I, the, the most interesting challenge for me working in, in, in that side of things has been as a person who understands data and going deep into the data, we can get really, really busy with like getting deeper and, and doing stats and looking at correlations and, and seeing if we can find these little connections to things like, Oh, uh, you know, um, you know, previous injury and, and what's, what's, is it, can I develop a risk assessment based on that and, and use all my data and kind of come up with risks, you know, risk scenarios and all these fun, like scientific things. Um, and, and within us in our nerd world, we can really geek out on that and spend time, you know, this is my model and, and we can assign almost a met value to, to, you know, to our, to our load. And then we can, we can prescribe based on mets. I mean, we can get really geeky about it. And, um, but one of, the, one of the most important learning things that I've been geeking out on, honestly, is that ha like 90% of my coaches don't care about any of that. Um, all they wanna know is, is like the bottom line and how it impacts them. 
And so part of what I really geeked out on as a side geek project was trying to find different ways to present the data in a way that the coaches would absorb it and take it and value it. And that, that in and of itself is a project because, um, for me, I, I had a, like almost like a repeating year, uh, evaluation with the coaches to ask them, like, was this helpful? What do you want to see? Is this displayed properly? How are you getting these reports? You know, and we migrated to a system whereby we created our own internal system that was on the scouting database where the coaches were already going to watch film and integrating the data with that point of contact they were always interfacing with, you know, and I, I had started off at the beginning with like handwritten reports on their desk with like magic marker and, you know, all that fun stuff. <laughs> and then all I, I've talked about this before, but we ended up migrating all of the data into a percent game uh, for everything as a metric. And that was something a lot of coaches understood better um, than maybe just a generic load number. So if I said to them, he did a hundred for 150% of his his volume for a game they could process that so for me it's been an interesting game of just understanding the coach and understanding the position coaches because they're not the same in terms of what they want and what they understand and then maybe i was crazy but i had a different way to display it for different people based on what their needs were and to me that was a fun project just to learn how best to get communicate that the fact that you've been able to do that and you were doing it at the National Football League level, what piece of advice would you give to our coaches who might be thinking, I'm bashing my head against the wall trying to connect and relate to my coaches, but I just heard her talk about it. What What was your secret? Talking to them. <laughs> that sounds really basic, uh, but it happens all the time where we just make these assumptions and we don't really sit down and talk. And we, um, we actually don't educate them either. And so what, something I used to do every year was I'd sit down with the new crop of coaches. Because as you know, inevitably these, these people change. And I would just present to them what it is and what it's not and how it can help. And, and almost like do a little bit of a sales job every year. But, but realize that we are support staff and we orbit around the sun, which is the coaching staff. And That's a good one. Yeah, but it's true. And so realizing that. No, I that, know. That's that, why I laugh. Yeah. Like, I'm not mad. I'm just laughing because yeah. you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. So uh, if you take that posture and realize where you are in the galaxy, then um, feeling success is being able to be a part of your orbit, you know, and, and doing, and for some coaches, it's more. And for some coaches, it's less. And you can sit back and nerd out with your friends and get your fix that way. But true success is having that coaching staff just like value your what you're presenting to them you know what i mean and if it's just speed max speed all day long and they love it yes you feel embarrassed when you talk to your data analytics friends but guess what if they're valuing it and using it who cares that's just my opinion no you're right it's it's <laughs> i mean like it gets back to the core of like you just kind of got to kill your ego and, and check your ego at the door so that way you can you can serve the people that you're supposed to actually serve right like Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of my mantras always, always, and I had it in my office and I have it here now in my home office is, is, um, you know, and, and it actually comes from the Olympic world. The Olympic world very, very much adopts this model and it's team first and it's how can I serve this team? And in maybe it's, how can you serve the club? And if you truly, truly adopt that and you're like, how, how am I going to help the club today? How am I going to help these players today? If you truly ascribe to that, like in your core fabric, you can't go wrong. Um, but a lot of people are the other way. It's how do I serve myself today? How do I look good today? How do I um, posture myself with the head coach at this meeting today? Um, so if you're putting ego first, then usually it's not going to result in some good outcomes. Yeah, let's dive down the, the Olympic side rabbit hole and, you know, working with stopwatch sports how different was that from a uh, nutrition standpoint and then also from any of the sports tech that maybe you were using yeah so again it kind of just depended on the, the sport right so uh 
there's certainly ones that are timed and it's a pretty finite end and 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 those are wonderful to work with <laughs> to be honest hmm. because you can really measure success very uh you know very fi- in a finite way and and oftentimes the periodization and training plans for those types of sports are on point and there's nice beautiful uh, training camps at altitude and and we do all these fun things and we monitor a lot of physiology and then we can actually time it all all along the way and it's great and so um those sports are awesome to work with to be honest um and then you get your sports where it's it's a it's an art you know like uh, when i was with combat sports you know judo wrestling taekwondo boxing it's it's it there's a lot more nuance to those things and so to me what i've always just ascribe to is just like really getting deep into the physiology of the sport and then understanding it and then understanding not only the physiological demands but then the second layer is understanding the cultural demands of the sport and how does this thing operate and how do I navigate within the the culture of this sport and the coaching staff and all that stuff and then trying to marry those two into effective interventions that are going to help them at the Olympic level though there's um it's a, it's a weird word, but there's definitely more of a desperation of the athlete because oftentimes they've, they've literally given this, they've given their whole life up literally to, to follow this dream. And so the, um, I had a lot of athletes that were on food stamps. I had a lot of athletes that just basically put their family and everything on hold because they were trying to chase the dream of making an Olympic team. And, and frankly, that desperation, um, really helps uh, them to kind of buy in to working with practitioners that are going to help them get better. And so uh, it's actually a really lovely population to work with because they're really, really um, committed and eager and they want to be the best in the world. And if you're crazy enough to chase that goal, then you usually are crazy enough to kind of jump on board with fun physiology experiments and, and ways to improve your game. For any of our listeners out there that are like, oh man, you know, maybe she's working with new teams because you said it really depends on the sport and they're working with a new sport and they're trying to figure out how to assimilate. What were some of the best things that you did to understand the sport and to then get the ultimate buy-in with the athletes and coaches? Yeah. So, I mean, for me in the beginning, it was like, again, getting into my physiology understanding of the sport. If it's a sport you've never worked with before, you know, um, you gotta just understand the sport. So literally, I would sit down and just read about the sport. How is it played? What are the, what are the, um, you know, typical measures of success for somebody in a sport? And then it was just be spending a lot of time at practice and observing how that goes, developing relationships with the coaches and just asking questions. You know, can I can I just have a look at your training schedule? Can you tell me a little bit about your training philosophy? Um, a lot of times, you know, coaches are happy to answer those questions, especially if you kind of are asking them about them, you know, like who doesn't want to talk about themselves. Mm. So it's kind of just trying to gain respect by, by being curious and trying to understand their philosophy and, and being very respectful of their philosophy. Because, um, I've worked a lot in soccer, for example, and man, you get a coach from Italy, you get a coach from Denmark and you get a coach from the United States and their philosophies on training and how they're going to do it are totally different. Are there, is there a right one? No, right? Because there's winners in all those places. So you can't go in there and be like, well, this is crazy. You know, look at this volume. Like, you know, because guess what? You're not the one that's been hired to make that call. Um, You're hired to understand the call and to understand the physiological implications of that call and then to buffer and assist around it. So for me, it's just like being very respectful to the, the coach and their model and then trying to, like I used to say sometimes with wrestling, because they always have overtraining, like for real overtraining, three days. Like you almost like just are there to see, okay, when's the blood coming out? And like, how good are my band-aids right now? You know? And sometimes it's just triage and first aid, but, but at least you're providing something, you know? No, for sure. Um, hearing you talk about all this, one of the things that I want to know from the diverse background, whether it was, you know, Olympics here in Canada or the uh, NFL, without naming names, obviously, what are some of the worst practices that you've seen or the bastardization of nutrition in sport? Because (laughs) I want, I know what I think it is, but I want to hear like a true expert's opinion. Okay. Okay. Uh, 
I won't say, I, I'm not going to say any teams or anything. I've had a few situations. So there's a lot of cultural norms, you know, with some sports. Um, I remember working with a team once and getting in trouble because I canceled the hot dogs at halftime. So that was one that I, I literally, and then the funny part was the person who yelled at me about it was the team doctor. So I got yelled at by the team doctor because I got rid of hot dogs at halftime for an elite <laughs> team. Uh, and I, as the dietitian, I made that call because I was like, why on earth are we ordering hot dogs at halftime? You know, this doesn't make any sense. My job is to oversee this. I cannot sign off on this, you know. Um, that was definitely one of those moments in my life. Um, I think the other thing too, and I used to have a saying in the NFL, like, you know, um, I used to call it on your own time and on your own dime because I would have requests from players to to order like deep dish pizza or, you know, um, like any sort of fried foods or like basically carnival foods, you know, and our coach, our coaches have this fast food Friday cultural thing. And so I would kind of like always offer both, you know, you kind of have the fun and the, and the healthy, but, um, I know that some people kind of really dive into that really hard, you know, and they, and they almost make the food situation a popularity contest. Like the more crap I can serve, the better the players are going to like me, you know? Um, my, my mantra was always on your own time and on your own dime. If I'm being paid as the team dietitian and it's my job to be responsible for our budget for that, um, then I can't, I can't spend the, again, if I'm putting the club first and I'm putting the player first as my, as my anchor point, I would say on your own time and on your own dime, you go, you go buy it. But I can't with good conscience spend the club's money on this. So physiologically with my com with the combat sports, I mean, you name it, uh, every bad practice you can think of my, my one boxing athlete, I'll never forget. I had just done a whole session on, you know, the physiology of weight cutting ways to do it properly. You know, I was all up there puffing my chest thinking I was the smartest person in the room. And on the way back, we were walking back, and he's like, I don't know why you got to make it so complicated, man. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, if I want to lose weight, I just don't eat. Problem, solution. And he just walked away. <laughs> yeah, why did you make it so complicated? Like, what is wrong with you? He's like, I don't know why. It's like, I, don't, I just don't eat. That's it. And, it. and it was like one of those moments in my life where I was like, well, yeah, you're right. You know, like. If I, if I literally took you all and put you in a cage and didn't feed you, it would happen. You know, it's going to happen. There's no uh, thyroid problems when that's the situation. Um, so, but it was one of those, again, it was one of those moments where I was like, okay, I got to remember who my population is and, and where they're coming from. That's a wake up call right there. What, uh, flip side, what's been like, you know, best practices, like, holy cow, I was really not expecting it to be this good for her. Um, you know, these people reached out and I'm really impressed with how well they've done it. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think to be honest with you, like not every single, uh, you know, Olympic sport is perfect, but the, when I worked for the U S Olympic committee and the Canadian Olympic committee, what I really appreciated about those groups, um, was that they were really on point with hiring like the very best at what they do. Um, and there was a very diet, they really, really, you know, it wasn't a buddy system hire. Like sometimes we encounter, you know, in some situations and they really, really, um, tried to handpick some of the best practitioners in the world. And so a lot of the people that I worked with, I mean, all of them had PhDs. I was probably the only one that just had a master's and I felt very inadequate with that. Um, but you know, working with, I loved working with people that were like r way smarter than me, you know? Um, yeah. and definitely that comes with ego, uh, but we could all, we all had respect for each other. And so that environment was really fruitful and really intellectually stimulating for me. And I know that's not necessarily like, you know, common everywhere you go to work with a, a lot of really intelligent and smart people who are the best at what they do. And so I appreciated that about working within the Olympic committee and working for the the uh, Canadian side is the staffing and the way that they really went about getting the best in the world um, really helped me develop and grow in a way that I never would have done if I had just been maybe in, in pro sport the whole time. 
I have a question for you. What is going to be the best way to measure body composition for our listeners if they're like, oh, I have a DEXA or I have a BOD pod? If somebody's got the two, which one should they use and why? Well, we're going down a nerd topic for me, so... Um, 100%. Let's do it. <laughs> so I'm a level three anthropometrist with ISAC. So I've done like a lot of training in, in body comp and, and measurement. And it's, it's definitely a passion area of mine. So the one thing I say to everybody is there's one gold standard for body composition. And that's murder. Murder is the gold standard because we murder you. We, we peel you like an orange and we measure you. And I say that to every one of my athletes. Because that's how actually Siri and all those equations were, were determined was through cadaver analysis. So the gold standard is murder. Everything after killing your athlete is, a, is an estimation. And so you pick, you pick your poison, right? You pick your poison. Every single um, modality has error. It's, you, it's up to you as a practitioner to know the error and to control the error. And so for me, when I was with the Olympic team, because I was on the road all the time, I can't take a bod pod with me. I can't take um, uh, DEXA with me. So I did ISAC level one and level two skin folds assessment. Um, that was very practical. For me, I liked it because I didn't have to control for hydration or time of day or whatever. And my error was me as a measurer, right? My error was me, me versus me. And I took the ISAC course because it taught me a standardized technique. So every time I did my assessment, I did it the same way. When moving into the NFL situation, I can't do ISAC assessments on 100 guys in the preseason. It's too time-consuming. Um, and so for a while, we used BOD pod, and then we moved to, to DEXA. Um, both can work, but both have errors. You know. And so with, with the BOD pod, we had to really control for, um, with the larger individuals, the egg's not made for my 320-pound alignment. It's just too, he, they got to stuff in there. And, and all of the science behind Bod Pod, it's air displacement, right? Um, sorry, I'm moving my hands a lot in this. I'm Italian. No, you're so good. I, I talk on my hands yeah. too. Um, but so like, as you're saying that, I had a 6'5", 350 lineman in a Bod Pod the other day. Yeah, yeah. And, and they get in there. But I would always worry because it's it's based on air displacement and, and wasn't built for that size. And so... Um, you know, and then we would have situations as you've probably experienced with players that had dreadlocks and, and big hair. And sometimes that would be being read as mass. Right. And so you kind of have to really know those errors. Um, we had it too, sometimes with the, the we would bring the bod pod with us to training camp and it would be hot in a hot room and that, and that heat and humidity would impact measurement. So you just have to kind of know that. And then really, Control, 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 control. If you're going to be using this thing as a serial testing tool, you have to control if it's going to be serial measurements. So controlling the time of day, controlling what they're wearing, controlling, um, in some cases, what they're drinking. DEXA is fantastic. I've used it for a number of years. Um, we had a Norland system at the Bears because it had a big scanning table, so I didn't have to squash them in. Um, but if you have a gut full of food, it reads that as lean mass. So DEXA's really, really, uh, we would only use it in the morning fasted, right? And then there's a time constraint because the measurement takes a little bit longer depending on how big you are. Um, and so, yes, murder, can't do, if you can't do murder, know your, <laughs> know your methodology, but know the errors and then and try to control the errors. And, and you can be, it can, you, any of them can work as long as you are just controlling for the known error of your technology. How, uh, that ISAC, it takes a while to, to get that done, right? So it just depends. So there's level one level and level two assessments. Level one is basically doing a seven site skin fold and then doing some bone breadth measurements. Um, and you can take the bone breadth measurements out if you don't want to measure somatotype or some of those other fun things. Um, so it doesn't actually really take that long. It can take, depending, I just did a bunch of folds the other day with the MLS team and it took me about under like eight minutes per guy to kind of get it done. But I've, I'm really proficient at it and kind of do all my landmarks really quickly. Um, so it's not too bad. It becomes really unreliable when you have like overly fat players. So like for linemen, my, my caliper can't even get on there. And then the compressibility of the skin is really high. So with the dials going all over the place. So 
you know, for those bigger bodied people or people that have a lot of excess body fat, you, you're not going to get any reliable data from them. So, um, yeah, so, but it's a great, I mean, I've, I've been doing it for 10, 12 years now. I got initially trained in Australia, um, with my level one and then level, I'm a level three now, so I can do instruction and it's just a nice, cheap, um, and practical portable way to assess something. Um, which again, if you just minimize the error of your own internal measurement, um, it can be reliable and you can use it to track serially. Now, as you talk about tracking serially, what would be the best way that you recommend you continue to you know, follow up? How often is too often? How often is not often enough? Yeah. So what we know is like for, for, so you measure and then you have an intervention, whatever your intervention is going to be, is it exercise stimulus? Is it a nutrition um, intervention? And then usually um, you are not going to really start to see true body comp change at a, at a fat level. Um, I hate to say it until like six to eight weeks. Um, and so I usually wouldn't really be doing my repeat testing any, um, in an, any like in a quicker period of time from that because as we know the physiology of weight loss a lot of times in the beginning it's it's glycogen it's um it's hydration and, and your body's kind of just trying to adapt to the stimulus and so usually six to eight weeks would be where i would be looking at it but so like i've had you know some some coaches reach out to me and their body comping guys on a weekly basis or a bi-weekly basis you're probably just tracking some hydration changes and I wouldn't, or glycogen changes. And I, I wouldn't rely on that data as something to tell me um, in a finite way about a body comp change from a body fat or a lean mass perspective until I've reached those other time landmarks. <clears throat> Sticking here, yeah. you know, drop a little bit of knowledge on myself and everybody like, Okay, what is going to be the best recommendation for weight gain, weight loss, you know, following up on that, you know, six to eight weeks is when you would have people recomped. Uh, what would be some, yep. you know, recommendations you'd make to somebody that needs to gain weight, lose weight? Yeah, so there's, there's really no magic to it. And I wish that I could like write a book that just had two pages in it. Um, because really, it's really not that hard. <laughs> although like the entire world makes it really hard, you know. And I'm not talking about putting them in the cage either, although that, that, that's very easy, actually. That's an easy one. Um, we're murdering people and putting them in cages. This is going really crazy, <laughs> this conversation. Um, sorry, yeah, we guys. got some good titles. Easy. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the, 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 to me, the, the fundamental part of getting it right is assessing their current habits and what are they currently doing. Because any sort of change, weight gain, weight loss, lean mass gain, body fat loss, any sort of change has to be a change from what they're currently doing, right? So if I'm currently, I'm just gonna really global here. If I'm currently consuming, let's say 2000 calories a day, that's what I always do, that's my habitual intake. And then I drop it down and everybody always talks about, you know, a 500 calorie deficit, or if you wanna do, if you wanna manipulate macros, you can do, you can, you can, you can, you can skin this cat so many different ways. Intermittent fasting, meal plan and portion size, uh, keto, uh, cage, you know, um, Weight Watchers, points, like you can do it. You just have to create a change from the norm, you know? And then the second piece, the second page of my book, evaluate what they're doing, come up with your intervention. Maybe it's three pages long. And then the third page is consistency, consistency. We don't get stronger when we lift once every two weeks. We don't get more flexible if we try to Im improve that once a week. Same thing with nutrition. Nutrition is four to six workouts a day, depending on how many times you're feeding yourself. And if you're not consistent with that, you're not gonna get results. And I always tell my athletes that you strength coaches have it way easier than us because you get them in a controlled environment for an hour, two hours, and you tell them what to do and they're in, you have a cage, you have a cage uh, <laughs> that they're in. And sometimes we're murdering them. Like go look yes, at some strength yes. coaches out there. It's like everything, right? And then from a nutrition perspective, I literally cannot be there at every single time they put something in their mouth. And um, that's the hardest part about being a nutrition professional is that 
food is is not just macros it's behavior and it's emotion and it's habit and it's very very like human you know and so to 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 try to get in on all those workouts you know um it's hard but but that's what you, you need consistency right you need them to do it do it consistently and i've had so many players that were like yeah i ate really well on monday you know why haven't i lost any weight and you're just like bro this is a deal this is a commitment you know to to making this change so yeah that's kind of my answer on that I wonder if we have any, you know, I'm going to assume that some of our listeners are like, okay, great. We've got a nutritionist on staff, but the players never see him or her because like you said, split and have all these other things. Yeah. Talk about that difficulty of if you're not around the athletes, it's got to be impossible to make change. No. Yes. A hundred percent. Half of, Half of being, and you're in this, we're in the same profession. We're behavior change modifiers, right? We, our job is to modify behavior to re- achieve a result. And we're dealing with human beings, not robots. And so I think why I say all that is because trust needs to be built when you're going to go into someone's world and change behavior. And so if you're never around or you're just a, a, a business card on a, uh, on a bulletin board somewhere at school, um, there's no trust there. And, and, and really, you know, we all have been there. You go, you know, maybe you go see a new doctor or a new Cairo or whatever. And you're like, Ooh, that nervousness about like meeting someone you've never met before. And so, um, if you're not taking, if you're, if your nutrition professional isn't taking an active role in just being there and just showing up, um, then that trust is harder to garner, you know, and a lot of our athletes are lazy and not self-motivated. So you kind of have to, I used to always say like, you know, out of sight, out of mind, 100% with us. Um, so you gotta have someone that's gonna kind of try to get into their space and, and develop that trust. It's interesting you say that because one of my former assistants, um, who's now down at a different university in Texas, he said something similar. He's like, you know what? Like how good would our guys be if lifting or practice was optional? He's like, probably pretty bad. But mm-hmm. nutrition, completely optional. So what we did is we had our nutritionists come in every Monday and we took 15 yep. minutes out of their weight training session and it was dedicated to a different topic every day and trying to make yep. it interactive so that way we could start to create those changes. Um, you know, that's my one idea of it. What are some other good ways that you've seen getting FaceTime, for lack of a better term, with the athletes? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, when I first started at the Bears and they had never had a full-time dietitian before, that's exactly what I did. I asked the strength coach if I could do, mine was a two-minute talk at the beginning of the lift when guys were just coming and huddling together and the football schedule is so tight, like to get in is really hard. So I would just kind of get up on literally a soapbox and just kind of do a like tip of the day and, you know, and really try to hit them hard with things that matter to them, like recovery or injury, um, recovering from injury and just trying to almost do a cell job. Like if you have a, if you have a supplement, your agent sent you and you don't know if you should take it, come see me. And, and you kind of just try to build that bridge to how you can help them. And so those are really easy opportunities to, to engage your nutrition professional for sure. Just give them a few minutes in front of the guys. Obviously, if you have a head coach that's bought in to carve out some education time in front of them as well, um, and then really, honestly, the easiest way to, to an athlete's heart is through his mouth. So really I, what I used to do too, when I was still trying to like kind of develop relationship with our guys is I'd go into the weight room with some new bar that we were trialing and just ask if anyone wanted to be my, I called them my sampler boys. Who wants to be my sampler boy? I got this new bar. It's made from crickets, cricket protein. Remember those? Um, I need someone to try this for me, you know, and just kind of try to have fun with it and uh, get them to just trial new products or get them eating something new or um, engaging with them that way. And then, and then really it just cascades from there. Well, we've talked a lot about, you know, the team sport and things prior. So let's talk about, you know, if anybody was looking at your resume, they'd be like, okay, in the NFL doing two different roles, two different teams, why leave that world and do what you're doing now? So talk about what uh, exactly it is that you're doing now. Yeah, so I was, um, 
so I left the Bears because I was I was told to leave the Bears. So that's the situation that happened with, with me. Um, and so it was just staffing change. Um, it had been my third regime, and I was just another victim of the uh, the proverbial, you know, cycling that happens in pro sport and what we all sign up for. So to be honest with you, it was a blessing in disguise because I had been kind of scheming about about kind of getting out and doing my own thing for a while. And so came back to Colorado, which is where I was, you know, before we moved to Chicago and and really just tried to start to uh, kind of develop my own way, you know, and and I loved working in football, you know, um, it has, it's literally been almost half my career between the Saints and the Bears, nine years. Um, but it definitely is an environment that kind of requires you to sell your soul. You're, you're there all the time, um, seven days a week, long hours. And um, I have a family and uh, it was just kind of one of those things where I'm like, you know, I think I have enough knowledge and enough contacts right now where maybe I can choose how often I want to to give that soul away. <laughs> so that's kind of been, it's kind of been a really fun experience and, and actually getting back out and zoning out again out of the NFL world and getting back into some other sports um, has been really good and really refreshing to me. And um, being in this for so long and, and kind of having the connections and networks and the experience that I do, um, I'm also moving into kind of the training and mentoring um, piece uh, in performance nutrition. So um, a colleague of mine, Dr. Dana Liss, who's a well-known um, researcher and dietitian, we've kind of started a, a group together called Performance Nutrition Professionals. We'll be uh, launching our, our LLC in a couple weeks. And we're basically just trying to um, provide training, really good evidence-based training and performance nutrition, not only for dietitians, but for strength coaches, athletic trainers, um, through courses that are actually in person and live and, and affiliated with academic institutions. So like our first one's gonna be in conjunction with University of Colorado and to try to kind of at, bring back some of that um, academic learning that we all did when we were doing our undergrad but had no idea how to apply it, you know, back to people who are like, you know, we call it lab to life, like bringing back lab to life, but for people that are actually working working in the field, you know. So that's really exciting to me because it's, I love teaching and I love, uh, I really love nerding out on science. And so <laughs> it's kind of an opportunity to, to do both in my world, like still service with some teams here, but then also really get into my passion project, which is educating and training and mentoring. So we're excited for that to launch. No, you bring, yeah, you bring up a good point because that's kind of, you know, why we exist at Strength Coach Network is yeah. trying to bridge the gap between real life and university setting and, and why we have you know, the site in our fundamentals course, um, just to, to bridge that gap. And, you know, for you and your colleague doing that with nutritionists, I think that's also huge because there has to also just be a massive gap between what you're taught as a RD or as a nutritionist and what actually happens because, um, you know, the, it's not taught in our world how to relate to professional professional. Like, is that things that gets taught in your educational world too or no? Is that stuff that you guys go over in your course or? Not really. I think we all get educated in our own silo, you know, and then we kind of get thrown out into the yeah. world and then we all have to play nice, you know. And so to me, I also feel like across sport disciplines, especially if you take a trainer, a dietitian and a, and a strength coach, there's all areas in which we overlap in our practice area. You know, a lot of trainers are involved in hydration. A lot of trainers are involved in, in sometimes nutrition recommendations because they may not have a dietitian on the team. Same thing with sport, uh, with strength coaches. They might be um, the ones, they might be the dietitian when you don't have someone full-time. They're giving out supplements. They're um, recommending nutrition plans. And that's part of your training as a strength coach too. And so I feel like, um, there, we all kind of have a little bit of a, a little bit of overlap in each of our areas in, in the world of performance nutrition specifically. And so we're just trying to also look at that gap too, but provide like really credible and evidence-based information to, and tra and more training than just like listening to a lecture on your computer while you're you maybe 10% invested because your players are walking by or your baby's crying, you know, <laughs> just to be real. What would be you know, for our strength coaches that are listening out there, what is the best way that a strength coach can help a nutritionist, a dietitian on a staff where, like you said, you can't be everywhere, but if a strength coach is around and they're, they're actually around the team and they're with them all the time, 
What is the best practice for a strength coach to essentially work under and be giving recommendations through you? Let's just use an example. Hey, you and I work together. We're at, you know, Johnny, whatever university, and you're the dietitian and I'm with the guys all the time. How would I best serve them through you working underneath you? Yeah. So I think it's really simple. You just have to have the right systems built up, you know? And so for example, if the dietitian comes in and, and sets up a fueling station for you guys, but can't be there all the time, then, then it's kind of like that RD can help to inform the strength coach. Okay. This is why we have these products here. It's not just throwing a whole bunch of crap on the floor and like, Oh, grab your stuff. It's like, here's our pre during post fueling options for the guys. This is why we have them here. This is why they work maybe doing an intro session with the team, but then when the dietitian's not there, the strength coach just waves the banner and encourages guys to go over there, you know, go get your recovery stuff. This is why it's important, just echoing those things. And then I think where, where it becomes really important is, is that there's um, an opportunity for the strength coach to just flag the, the, the clinical cases that need to be seen by somebody, you know? So any sort of weight management probably needs to, to also have the support of a dietitian. Any sort of eating disorder, disordered eating situation needs to be flagged and sent that way. Even in some cases, like, you know, we have to start to also appreciate that there's medical nutritional therapy for when they're injured. So like at, in the NFL, I had a whole list of different um, ailments, you know, bone, uh, stress fractures, uh, muscle tendon issues, uh, muscle pulls, um, ACL repairs. There's, there's an intervention for each of those nutritionally. And even if you don't even want to go down into the science of like ligament, feeding ligaments, just at a basic level, the guy is going to be out for 10 months with his ACL or MCL. Guess what? He's going to probably lose a lot of mass and he might get really fat or he might get really skinny. And if that body composition change is really hard and really like dramatic, that impacts his ability to get back on the field, right? Because... In the NFL, anyway, they're robots, right? So I don't care. You're my 220-pound running back, and you're going to go and get your surgery and rehab, but the expectation is you're going to be popping back in as fast as possible. That's not going to work if you're at 20% body fat or you've, you're have you at you know two, you're at 180 pounds because you've lost all of your mass because you've been sitting around rehabbing, right? So... At a very basic level, any of those injuries can have a, a, a impact um, on body comp. And so that's where the dietitian can come in and help to mitigate some of those things. So yeah, so those are the things too, where it's kind of like programs will be set up. You can, you can definitely encourage them to do those programs and then being able to kind of go, okay, here's a situation where I can flag this and maybe get some additional support and on a case-by-case basis, refer them out. No, that's awesome. That's that's good for me to hear, and I think it's also really good for our you know strength coaches listening out there, so they can you know just help, like you said, carry the banner and, and do right by the athletes. Um, you know, we're coming up on the end of the hour here. Where can any of our listeners that have made it this far? Where would they go to continue to follow you and continue to get to learn from you? Yeah. So on Instagram, I'm um, elite eats uh, elite underscore eats underscore. Um, ink so elite eat ink um, and we'll we'll get that put up in the podcast and then the website is www.elite-eats.com um, and then the performance nutrition professionals we're going to be launching that um, business in a couple weeks and so if you follow me on elite eats we'll have all the information for that and um, and all the information for the course that's coming up and it'll be in June this year at University of Colorado and we've already got continuing education credits for strength coaches, um, athletic trainers, and dietitians approved for it. So we're really excited about it. Well, NSCA is, is on board and going to help us a little bit with promoting that um, as well. So we're excited to, to get going and just get training and educating. That's awesome. And we'll be sure to put that stuff in the show notes. So thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thanks for having me.